gold standard. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Well, welcome everyone to the Dr. Hedberg Show. This is Dr. Hedberg. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the connection between Helicobacter pylori and Hashimoto's disease. So a lot of infections are connected to autoimmune diseases. They are potent triggers of autoimmune disease. Remember with autoimmune disease, you have to have a genetic predisposition and you have to have some kind of trigger, whether it's a traumatic, stressful event, uh, like a death of a loved one or ongoing chronic stress, stressful relationship, um, stressful job, etc., etc. So you have to have some kind of trigger like that, a, a stress to the body that's either quite profound at one period of time or ongoing. And uh, infections can are definitely in that category of triggers for autoimmune disease. So H. pylori, it was actually discovered in 1982 in people who had ulcers. And uh, a lot of people have it. About half of the world's population has uh, Helicobacter pylori, but the real question is, is it active? Is it causing damage? And is it connected to Hashimoto's? So H. pylori, um, a couple other things to note about it, just so you understand it. It is a bacteria and, uh, it tends to be found in those with people who have heartburn, also known as GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, stomach cancer, ulcers, and gastritis. So the bacteria, it gets into the stomach lining, it burrows in, and the burrowing causes inflammation and damage. And then it just takes cold in the stomach lining and uh, causes chronic inflammation there and uh, can slowly damage the gut lining. And H. pylori, like most bacteria, it can create a biofilm Biofilms are like a slime. It's a, like a mucopolysaccharide slime uh, that surrounds the colonies and protects it from the immune system and from antibiotics. Now, H. pylori, it doesn't really like high levels of stomach acid, so it will migrate to areas that have very low stomach acid. And low stomach acid, that's known as hypochlorhydria. And a couple of things that can lead to low stomach acid. So interestingly enough, hypothyroidism can lead to low stomach acid. So this makes you more prone to the H. pylori. And then if you're taking antacids, you know, proton pump inhibitors, Tums, things like that, then you can become more prone to infection. And then some of the big ones that really, other than hypothyroid, that suppress stomach acid production are uh, adrenal imbalances, so stress, chronic stress, lots of cortisol, lots of adrenaline. This all suppresses stomach acid production. 
So a lot of times we have to check the adrenals. Uh, zinc deficiency. So zinc, remember, is one of our most important minerals for healthy thyroid function. And as you lose stomach acid, you uh, lose your ability to digest and absorb all the minerals that you eat. And uh, so that creates a vicious cycle because you get the low stomach acid and then you get a zinc deficiency. And then the zinc deficiency feeds the low stomach acid. And then the zinc deficiency also creates symptoms of hypothyroidism. Also intestinal dysbiosis, so the bacteria in your gut are out of balance. And then also bacterial overgrowth, what we know it's called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, those can contribute also food sensitivities, food intolerances, food allergies, uh, whatever we want to call it, just any foods that are stressing your immune system. And then B vitamin deficiencies. Uh, some of the B vitamins are important for stomach acid production. And if you're under a lot of stress for a long period of time, you'll most likely be deficient in, in the B vitamins. So H. pylori, how do you get it? Uh, we don't actually know for sure how it's transmitted, but we do know that it's contagious. It's most likely transferred from mouth to mouth or uh, oral to fecal uh, roots into the body. We do know that it is uh, found in contaminated food and water. It's also found in dental plaque and saliva and vomit and feces of all of those who are infected. So it could just be uh, uh, maybe just a simple kiss that could result in infection or sharing a drink or someone actually made the mistake of, of sharing a toothbrush with someone else. Uh, that Those are other methods or ways of getting H. pylori infection. All right, so the symptoms of H. pylori, this is really interesting. 85% of people with H. pylori are completely asymptomatic, so no symptoms at all. The other 15% can have stomach pain, like burning in the stomach, stomach ache, and one of the, the key indicators is if your stomach pain is worse when you have an empty stomach. So first thing in the morning when you wake up, if your stomach is irritated, and uh, that could uh, be an indicator of H. pylori or in between meals. Heartburn, nausea, if you have black stool, belching after meals, bloating, vomiting, loss of appetite, and weight loss. Those are really the main symptoms of H. pylori infection if you have it. Now, interestingly enough, you know, some infections can actually be beneficial uh, because they have certain effects on the immune system, uh, certain effects on the gut, and things like that. So there are some strains of H. pylori that can actually help a few things, which is kind of paradoxical, but some strains will actually help to normalize stomach acid production. Uh, some strains will actually help with heartburn. It's interesting. Some will cause it. Some will, will prevent it. Uh, dermatitis, asthma, rhinitis, which is just inflammation of the sinuses, the nose, inflammatory bowel that can help, esophageal cancer prevention, 
uh, Barrett's esophagus, and it can help to normalize your appetite. So your stomach makes a hormone called ghrelin, and ghrelin makes you hungry. So H. pylori can suppress ghrelin levels, and so you aren't hungry all the time. So after you eat, uh, ghrelin levels should be low because you don't want to be hungry. And H. pylori can also help to suppress those levels. So sometimes after you treat H. pylori, people will actually report that they're feeling hungry after meals. And that's because the H. pylori is now gone and the ghrelin is, is no longer suppressed. And that, that will turn around in time, but that can be one of the initial, initial uh, side effects of getting treated for H. pylori. So we also know that people who are treated for H. pylori tend to gain weight after it's treated. And so part of that is the increase in the appetite. So we have to use a lot of caution if, say, someone is already obese or if they're a type 2 diabetic, then we want to be careful in, in making sure that we absolutely do, want, absolutely do want to treat the H. pylori. All right, so what are the best tests? There are five tests. The uh, urea breath test, where you drink a liquid and then breathe into a device, and that tells you if the uh, H. pylori is present. The blood test, the stool test, stomach biopsy, and a urine test. So the urine test is not really used um, really at all that I'm aware of. Uh, the breath test and the stool test tend to be the most accurate for an active infection. And the blood test is also very accurate. You just don't want to use it in someone who has been treated for H. pylori before. So the blood test antibodies can hang around for many years after the infection is successfully treated. But the blood test is still a good test if, uh, again, they've never been treated for it. And uh, you're just looking to see if there's any antibody activity there. But preferably, uh, for most people, the breath test uh, or the stool are the best. Um, the blood test is also advantageous if you're looking to see if the infection has become systemic. So, for example, uh, research has shown that in some people with uh, arteriosclerosis, so the placking in the arteries... They've actually found H. pylori inside of the plaque. And they've also found it inside the brain of certain people. So it can leave the stomach and cause uh, other issues in the rest of the body. And so that's where the, the blood test would also be very beneficial. The biopsy is just very invasive. I mean, it's highly accurate, but, you know, you're going into the stomach and cutting out a piece and uh, I just you really don't need to go that far when we have these other tests available. So the blood test, it's about 76 to 85% sensitive. The breath test is greater than 93%. And the stool test is about 93 to 98% uh, sensitive. So those are, those are kind of the numbers. And so those tests are, are all very good. Now, if someone's been on a proton pump inhibitor, then actually the blood test uh, is going to be 
tends to be better than the other ones because it can create some issues with the other tests. Okay, so once we know we have it, so let's say someone has Hashimoto's disease and we know they have H. pylori, then uh, you have options, of course. The first is the uh, conventional therapy. So this is the, it's called the triple therapy, and that includes a proton pump inhibitor to lower stomach acid. And then the two antibiotics are used, amoxicillin and clarithromycin. And so usually that's only given to people with ulcers because doctors usually aren't looking for H. pylori uh, for many other reasons, especially not in Hashimoto's. So that's, it's an interesting therapy because it lowers stomach acid, but that helps the, uh, the H. pylori actually. So the antibiotics though are obviously highly effective for the, the H. pylori. However, antibiotics always run the risk of creating antibiotic-resistant H. pylori, and then it also screws up your gut flora for about 13 months, and then you can create other other drug-resistant bacteria. The alternative treatments do not create drug-resistant H. pylori or mess up your gut flora. So there's a number of natural compounds that are shown to be very effective for H. pylori, and so we have mastic gum, N-acetylcysteine, which works on the H. pylori biofilm, berberine, oil of oregano, probiotics, omega-3 fatty acids, buffered vitamin C, Saccharomyces boulardii, sulforaphane, deglycerizinated licorice, aloe vera, and bismuth citrate. And so I'll use... Uh, a few of those, some of those in combination for about four weeks, and then we retest and uh, to make sure that the treatment was effective. Okay, so if you have Hashimoto's disease, in addition to H. pylori, get checked for the other infections. Um, I, the previous uh, recording was on uh, Yersinia enterocolitica and Hashimoto's, and I'll be doing more on Epstein-Barr and herpes and all the other infections that are connected with Hashimoto's. So as far as getting tested for all the infections connected with Hashimoto's, a lot of that's based on uh, the patient history. We don't just test every single Hashimoto's patient for every single infection. So a lot of that's based on, obviously, their detailed medical history and their symptoms and things like that. But H. pylori is definitely at the top of the list that everyone should get checked for with Hashimoto's. So I could say that that is a general recommendation for everyone who has Hashimoto's. And then if your tests come back positive, again, you can choose the conventional route or you can choose the functional medicine route. And uh, that's up to you. But we usually see a nice drop in the thyroid antibodies when it's treated successfully and usually improvement in the patient's symptoms when it's treated successfully as well. So I get great results when we find H. pylori and we address it. Okay, so that's H. pylori. Visit uh, drhedberg.com to check out all the resources and my article about this connection. 
And you'll also see all the links to everything I talked about. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support it by sharing it on your social media channels like Facebook or by email. And please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. All right, take care. This is Dr. Hedberg. And I will talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.